So I start you in this right oblique and I can keep shoving that right oblique forward, right? I have space that I can do that, right? I can lose all of my internal rotation by shoving you all the way forward. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, man, coming off of a great weekend. Looking forward to a very, very busy week this week. Um, which reminds me, we have an iFast University Q&A at 1 p.m. Eastern Time for those of you who are iFast University members. And if you're not, please get yourself signed up so you can participate in that this afternoon. Uh, today's Q&A is with Cameron. And so Cameron had some clarifying questions in regards to some of uh, the uh, pelvis orientation that we talk about. And so we talked about different types of turns. We talked about uh, the right oblique orientation and how that arises and then how that influences the center of gravity. Um, even making reference to um, how we would recognize this in, in the foot. So if you're looking at those relationships and you still have questions, this is gonna be a great call for you. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I do not delete it. Um, Got to um, take off. Got a very, very busy day. You guys have a great week, and I will see you tomorrow. All right, we're recording. Timer has started. Cameron, what is your question? All right. So I was uh, in my head. I get a little bit confused about and the, the difference between more that kind of flatter oblique turn from like the left side versus yep. up and over to the right side. Yep. And um, yeah, so I guess I was just kind of wondering if you can kind of walk walk me through kind of this shape change difference between yeah, the two. Yeah, sure, absolutely. It's, a, it's, it's fairly straightforward. Um, so the, both are defending against against an internal force that's trying to turn you. Okay, so that's the one thing that you have to recognize is that, is that both strategies, one, they're going to be idiosyncratic, so it's going to be a structurally driven decision. Okay, okay. And, but, but again, both are defending against the same, the same force. So this is an internally driven force that's trying to knock you off your feet to your left. Okay, okay. and that's, again, we don't really have a choice in that regard unless, unless your, your internal organs are, are flip-flopped and then it goes the other way. Okay, gotcha. All right, and so again, it's just a bias. All right, and so so when we when we're talking about so so I have to have some way to manage something that's trying to push me this way. The way I always describe it is is that if you were if you're standing in a really strong current in a river, mm -hmm. and that river is trying to knock you off your feet to your left, and what would you do? Well, you would turn into the current. Gotcha. So, so that's all this is 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 just a, a strategy. Okay? okay, and then how tall are you? Uh, six two. Okay, so you're taller than me. Okay. So it stands to reason that my strategy and your strategy would be somewhat different, just because of our physical structure. Correct? Right. Yeah. So you're going to turn differently than I am, and that's all we're talking about. So we've got. So what? But what we want to do is we want to represent the extremes, knowing full well that there is an infinite number of possibilities in between those two extremes. So the one extreme would be for me to to just take this and then just turn it. Actually, just turn it like that. Okay. Okay. And so this is going to be a very flat kind of a turn. Okay. But what that does is it gets the paddle in the water out in front of you, basically. That's what it does. Yeah. So so it, it, it pushes that sucker forward like that. Okay. And would but, that be kind of similar to if it was like a 
like a like a posterior lower compressive. Oh yeah. So, so that that's a that's that that's representative of a later propulsive strategy. Later sure. propulsive strategy. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I got to push it out there. Right. I got I got to get away to the turn. I got to create a turn. And so when you think about late propulsion, so what late propulsion does is it turns the sacrum away. So if I need to turn the sacrum into the current, so to speak, I got to push it out there. So what's the best way to do that? Well, under certain circumstances, it's going to be use a late propulsive strategy, which okay. is why you see a lot of people in that that late propulsive strategy. OK, now there's another way that I can do that. Instead of grabbing in the, with the posterior lower down here, is I just I grab right there where my my middle finger is, and so yeah. if I do that, what happens is is this side goes up. You see it? Mm. You see how it goes up? Right. Okay. And so it goes up, but it still turns the sacrum. I still achieve my goal of turning the sacrum yeah. in the other um, to the uh, to the right. To the right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the difference. And so, but 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 again, these are different representations. Of, of muscle activity in regards to how the, the pelvis is going to behave. So I still get my turn, right? But now you can see that I'm, I'm tilting the sacrum on, on a much more oblique axis, which is why I just call it a right oblique orientation, right? Gotcha. So you see the difference in the two? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so, that's... you know, if, if, you look at, if you look at some of the differences, when, when you see somebody in the flatter turns, mm -hmm. Because I'm using this posterior, this this lower aspect of, of the musculature, you know, down down so low, I'm mm -hmm. going to see these people. So these are the people that lose early hip flexion. These are people with a lousy straight leg raise, mm -hmm. right? These are people with that, that lack internal rotation, gotcha. right? This guy's still going to lose internal rotation by traditional measures, but chances are he's going to have a better straight leg raise and he's going to have early hip flexion. And so then, then maybe the. And then the right side would probably have a loss of some of the ER measures, like correct. Because I'm tipping up, I'm tipping, so I'm tipping up and over over this right hand side here. So mm -hmm. I tip up and over, so I'm going to lose my e. Like I, I think about it, just and I, I just can give you this this profile view. So if I yeah. push up and over and I push that hip forward, look at all this musculature that changes its orientation from ER to IR. Oh, right, because everything above the trochanter is going into correct. Yeah, so so you know it it. it Mm. All right, that makes sense to me. Right. So. so, so, so now that you have the two extremes in your head, yeah. The thing that, like I said, the thing that you have to recognize is that I, how many possibilities are in between the two? Yeah, and I guess that's what I get the most confused of when they're on the table. Is I'm, I'm like, well, right, but, but the rules, but, but the rules are the rules same. Are the okay. rules are the same, right? So, you, as long as you understand the two extremes, it's kind of like looking at. If you look at a wide ISA archetype and a narrow ISA archetype, those are the two mm. extremes, and everybody's in between there, right? And every once in a while, you're going to get one of those like really crazy outlier people that are like way out into one side, and it makes it like slam dunk easy. It's like, oh, this is going to be, you know, you get one of those people with the gigantically wide ISAs that 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 can't close it at all, and you go, okay, I know exactly what to do here. And you go to the other extreme, and you get the person that that walks in, and you get you can't even get your thumbs between your thumbs them. In there. Their, their their ribs, you know, um, yeah. but but again, that's all, that's all we're looking at here, um, in in regards to a, a defense against a force. That's that's what it is. It's a it's a force that's being driven against you at all times. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I guess my follow up to that is like, um, is like, how, how do you? So let's say if, sorry, I kind of have my guy here too. I guess. Uh huh. 
is if uh, in terms of the the flatter the flatter turn with the left going forward versus versus the versus the oblique going over to the side, how like how, how would maybe my early interventions? Um, I'm sorry, I'm not giving you enough context because I know you always follow up. Well, like it well depends. Well, um, context context makes everything easy because we can say in this representation we have this, and then we can actually give a demonstration of the of the rules. So just gotcha. Okay. So so I guess a really common presentation or I think of a couple people I have in the clinic right now where they they all have like that like bilateral like posterior lateral uh, or excuse me posterior compression. Mm -hmm. And then, and then they have a little bit of it of like that right oblique kind of uh, turn yep. right there. Yep. Um, so I was kind of at least my interpretation at the moment is to kind of go like bottom up to make sure they can get enough like hip flexion to get. Well, what, what can you do without it? Yeah. Uh, no, nothing. Nothing. Really. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, so I mean, again, these are the people that. Um, they're, if, if they're supine on the table and you and you and you take one of their their lower extremities and you try to move it, it's like right away you feel that resistance just kicking in against you, and you're going like, uh oh, okay, we've yeah. got an, you, you know a lot of times you, you have somebody that that's that's sort of like this end game representation where all the posterior lower is concentrically oriented, and and if you don't if you don't manage that first, you don't have a whole lot of space to work with. Gotcha. Yeah, and then. How and so let's say like once that's uh, let's say if we have someone that doesn't have that severe of that posterior compressive strategy, but they're more of that kind of oblique turn. Yep. To that to that right yep. side. Yep. Um, I guess I, I I kind of struggle with with picturing how to or or, or, or like how how we're changing the forces to create that like helical angle back without just pushing further back towards the left side. Well, you might. <clears throat> See, that's the thing. That, this is why we're talking about, when we, when we talk about extremes versus a progressive degree of, of difference. The general rule is I have to move you back on the same axis that pushed you there. Okay. Right. So, so if, if, if the axis is here, then I have to bring you back on that axis. If the axis is here, I have to bring you back on that axis. Right. Because it's, okay. it's the entire pelvis that's, that's orienting in that direction. So, so if, I, if I try, okay, so here's what's going to happen, okay? So if I'm on a right oblique, <clears throat> if I'm on a right oblique, okay, and I try to push you back on this side, what's yeah. going to happen? If I try to push you straight back on the left, what's going to happen? The whole thing would just orient over that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. It's like, so, so guess what? So here's one of these things. I got here with relative movement. Right. Yeah. Because the whole thing did it. I got here with relative movement. That. You see? Gotcha. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so what I need to do then is I need to move you back on the same axis that, that got you here. So I need to do that. Okay. Right. Which is why it's right foot lead kind of activities on the, on those oblique people is I'm going to push you back into the left. Under and so would it feel like for the most part, the effort to make that shift happen would be pressure from your right side, pushing you back. That I way? hope so. Yeah. Okay. I don't know how else you're going to, I don't know how else you're going to do it. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess you'd have to create that compression on the front to get that. 
expansion yeah. on the back side. Yeah, I, I have exactly right. Exactly right. I have, to, I have to push back into the left. And again, like I said, this is typically going to be like your, if you're in a staggered stance, it's a right foot lead. If you're in a split stance, it's a right foot lead. Gotcha. Right. And then, uh, oh, how are we doing on time? Uh, like minutes? We got four minutes. Okay. Um, uh, and then I, I so then I, I, I kind of been doing almost a cookie cutter thing, like, cause I kept thinking in my head, it, it was, uh, like the, a posterior compressive strategy on that left side that was pushing up and over. And I'm ready to clear that up on a, co a coaches and coffee call. And Alex, I remember I'd asked that question. Mm -hmm. Um, but oh, I, then I guess, um, so then the other thing would have to really be looking at the, perhaps the person's foot to make sure like what part of the gate cycle like they're kind of biased towards to get them out of it to really see that change or, or, or could you at first? It is, it is a, that? it's a comfort. It, it's certainly a confirmation of what's going on at the pelvis. Okay. Right. So, so, so let's just think about the, Oh, like the earliest possible representation mm -hmm. um, in, in the, in a right oblique is you're going to have an early propulsive foot on the, on the, the lead foot, which would be the right foot. Okay. Okay. Right. So then it would the farther okay. foot, hang on one sec. The farther forward you get pushed because you can continue to go forward. Right. Right. So I start you on this right oblique and I can keep shoving that right oblique forward. Right. I have space that I can do that. Right. I can lose all of my internal rotation by shoving you all the way forward. Okay. Right? So I, I tip you on the right oblique and I shove you from behind. Okay. That's basically what I'm doing. Okay. Gotcha. So I can steal that right, that early representation in the foot mm. if I push you farther forward. And now what you're going to see instead of that, instead of the, um, where, where's my foot? Let me get my foot. So instead of the early representation of the foot, you're going to start to see it look like it's going in the middle, right? So, so in the early then the early right oblique, I'm going to see a foot that looks like that. So I've got, I've got straight toes in line with the first, first metatarsal, right? But if I show the center of gravity forward, guess what? The tibia is going to come, right? So the, think about the pelvis moving over top of the foot now. And then you're going to see a, you're going to see a foot that looks like that. Mm. And I can still be on the right oblique. I'm just farther forward. So yeah. this is somebody, so typically on a right oblique, what you're going to see is you're going to see the loss of ER on the right, and you're going to see the, the maintenance of internal rotation on the right, unless you get pushed farther forward. Then you're going to start to see the loss of internal rotation. Well, I got to get it somewhere because it, so the, so the anterior orientation of the pelvis becomes my substitution for hip internal rotation, but it's still going to be demonstrated in the foot because the foot's got to go into an IR position. You see it? Right. Gotcha. So, so basically you're defining how far forward you are yeah. under those circumstances. And that's, that's the loss of IR. So the anti-orientation tells you via loss of ER, the, the forward displacement of your center of gravity tells you by the loss of IR. All right. I'll have to think about that for a little bit. <laughs> well, it's recorded. So there you yeah. go. Yeah. I'll be on the World Wide Web. Nice. Think, so, like, um, think fast. Oh geez, how no pressure? <laughs> then what would I guess? Hopefully, it's quick enough. In terms of what would the like, what would the region? Or I don't know if this has a representation like that. But is there in terms of like the representation of like a of that um, like lower posterior compression? 
Well, where would that be, like, up in, into the ribcage, like, in, in kind of context? The, the, the posterior lower ribcage. I mean, it, it's... Be, okay. Be yeah, it's iterative, right? Okay. Just going to repeat. It's going to repeat. Yeah. Uh, just keeps repeating the whole way down? All the way up, whole way down. Oh, yep. All right. Oh, so, it has awesome. to. Think about it. If I'm pushing everything forward, yeah, like, everything's eventually moving forward. Over, like, your center of gravity is going to shift forward. Everything else has to push forward too. Otherwise, you'd fall backwards, mm -hmm. and we don't like that. Wait, the seatbelt of complexity mixed in with how it kind of simple it is is very confusing. <laughs> the, the 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 rules the rules are are what is simple. It's the recognition that becomes difficult. Yeah. Right. All right. Okay. That makes sense. But, yeah. but if you understand the rule, it's like, how is this rule being applied? Right? That's what you want to recognize. Okay. Gotcha. And then, then that teaches you how the constraints behave. And if you understand the constraints, you understand the rules, then you understand how it's applied. Okay. And it's just reps. It's just exposures, exposures, exposures. Okay. All right. All right, brother. Appreciate it. I'll probably I'll see, you, uh, I'll see you on Thursday. Yeah. Sounds good. All right, Thanks, man. Y'all. All right. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Because if I only think it's if I only think that there's three possibilities, and I understand those three, and then something good happens, I give credit to one of those three things, and that's wrong. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand, and it is perfect. Man, that is really good. Wow. Uh, if you weren't on the IFS, you call yesterday. You really missed out on a good one. Um, had a really great group of people. Great questions coming through. We solved a lot of issues, I think, um, where there's little points of confusion in regards to, to talking about the model and how we apply it. Um, so make sure you go to ifashionuniversity.com. Get yourself signed up so you don't miss, on, miss out on the next call. Um, today's Q&A is with Anchor. This talk was totally different. Um, this was deeply philosophical. Um, we talked about probabilities. We talked about how to use ego to your advantage and not to your disadvantage. What is happiness? How to manage issues from the past. So, so deeply philosophical. So very different. Um, kind of caught me off guard a little bit. It was a little uncomfortable, but it, but it turned out to be a really good discussion. So I hope you find this this useful. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consult in the... Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. And um, we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have a terrific Tuesday, and I will see you tomorrow. We are recording and the clock has started. What are your questions? Yes, sir. So my first question is that you had said that young Bill Hartman was very stubborn and arrogant and he used to think that he knows it all. And now, so when you see when you say that after all these years of professional experience, you say that I just got lucky and it's all a game of probability and you have such an incredible model to your name. And so how did life teach you this? So how did you arrive at this uh, stage? And the thing is, what drives you every day? After <laughs> okay, so many no. years of experience, what drives you every day to wake up every day to learn, upgrade your model and uh -huh. to constantly work? 
Okay, <laughs> so <laughs> that's a lot all at once, isn't it? Um, so let's go. Let's go with this piece by piece. Okay, um, let's talk about the probability thing. So the so the probability thing is recognizing the fact that there are so many things that we don't know, and I think that the there's an element of a desire to want to know and then to have a limited perspective on on what is actually possible and what is actually happening. And then how much of an effect do we have on all of that? Like, what can we influence? And I think that the, our, the younger version of ourselves, because of the limited scope of perspective, it implies that we know something that we don't. Because if I only think it's, if I only think that there's three possibilities, and I understand those three, and then something good happens, I give credit to one of those three things. And that's wrong. So by living a life and, and having experience, what you start to recognize is there's a lot more influences than we ever thought were possible or that we could ever understand. And so the, the mature representation is that, okay, I can affect certain things, I can influence certain things, and then there's more unknowns than I could possibly imagine that I do not influence. And so what I try to do now is I try to manage those things that I do have an influence over, and then I observe, and I look at the outcome, and I say, was this favorable? If yes, I try to do more of what we just did. And if it's a no, then I, I have to change something. Knowing full well that I may not have the solution when it comes to doing something else. However, I do have experience. And so I fall back on that. It's like, so in the past, when this situation arose, what did I do that was successful? And so I lean on that to help me determine what to do next. So that's why we're playing probabilities because we don't know what the answer is going to be. So maybe, maybe I have a 70% likelihood of being successful by following a certain intervention strategy, but I still have 30% against me which means that both possibilities, a successful intervention or a failure are, are always possible. Because I don't know, I don't know so many things. And, and so 70% of the time, maybe I, I'm, I'm infinitely successful and 30% of the time, it's, it's nowhere near what I would want it to be. And then everything kind of falls, you know, somewhere along that, that line of probability. But that's how we do everything. And so, so again, it's like, I just respect that. And so understanding that puts you in a place where <clears throat> your humility better kick in because <clears throat> if you still think that you know something that you don't, that can lead to some arrogance. And then you're starting to put people at risk. So you're putting someone else at risk because I'm providing the intervention strategy and I potentially put myself at risk because if somebody doesn't like the outcome to such a degree and they decide that they don't like me enough, then I get in trouble. Yeah. 
speaking of arrogance, I have a question regarding, suppose this gradient model of yours. So how do you differentiate between self-confidence and ego? Is there, is it in spectrum, any overlapping? How do you? Okay. So, so self-confidence comes from having been in a number of situations, a number of times, and regardless of the outcome, knowing that you can recover. So, so you're an athlete, right? No, I'm a coach. Well, okay, but you played sports. Yes? Uh, no, sir. Never? No, sir. Okay. Have no, you sir. watched sports on TV? Yeah, yeah, all the time. Okay, okay. So there are, there are certain types of athletes that thrive in situations where there is a tremendous amount of unknown factors, okay? And so they've been in tough situations before and they have been successful after being in those difficult situations. From that comes self-confidence. So they are participating in an environment that is based on their strengths. And so they are able to apply those. And even in situations where the probability may be against them, again, we're playing probabilities again. So let's just go back to the 70-30 example. Let's say it's 70% against you of being successful, but there's a 30% chance that you will be successful. Those people that have been exposed to these environments and they know what their capabilities are and they're comfortable in this, this, this uncertainty, there's still a 30% likelihood that they'll be successful and they're playing off of that. That's self-confidence, okay? Ego is a tool. Ego is a tool that we apply in certain situations that allow us to take advantage of our self-confidence. However, when ego, when ego is applied to the extreme, when it's outside of our capabilities, where we think that we are too important or we think we are capable beyond what we have able, ever been able to demonstrate, right? then it becomes dangerous because that leads to arrogance. And then again, that's where the risk starts to increase. And then we put other people at risk under those circumstances. So for me to have this call with you, I have to have a certain degree of self-confidence. I have to apply, I have to apply an element of ego so I can express myself so I, so I can speak to you um, on, a, on a level that provides you something of value. But if I say that, oh, you wouldn't understand because it's so far beyond you know, what you could ever imagine because I am so great, I am so good. One, you're unlikable. Huh. It doesn't help you, right? And so I would say that when you apply ego in the service of others, huh. then it becomes useful. When you apply ego in the service of yourself, then it's not useful. Huh. So ego is a tool. It's something that you tune up and tune down hmm. based on the environment, based on the situation. So, so, so what you mentioned, so, so do you carry the load of being Bill Hartman every day or do you just let it go? <laughs> There's no load. There's no load. I'm so the, all the I, external validation that you get. So do you even? Uh, I don't. Like, I don't. I don't. 
doesn't matter. I don't value external validation. It exactly. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I don't control that. I, I can't control what anyone else thinks of me. I can't control outcomes. So I, I just understand my place, but it took a long time to get here. It takes experience, interactions, failures, successes, but it's paying attention to it. I think, I think there's some people that may, may lack the ability to, to pay attention to it, but there's no, there's no weight as to who I am. I, I will disappear from the face of the earth and I will be forgotten very quickly. And it won't matter. This perspective, this perspective. So, so I exactly had a question regarding this. So uh, do you practice the attached yet detached thing? Like you are so invested time, energy, money-wise in your craft, you're so good at it and you are developing it every day. But someday, if in a moment, if everything goes away, would you be still happy or? I'm I mean, very happy. I'm very happy right now. Everything, I, I don't want anything. So happiness, happiness is not like, like when you throw a party and every, you know, like that's a moment of joy. Happiness is the spaces in between, right? Happiness is when you don't want for anything. So if I don't want anything, I'm very happy. If there's something that you desperately want, that's discomfort. So you're superimposing joy on happiness, like ERIR. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. Happiness is not happiness is not the party. Happiness is 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 the contentment and this and the sense of not having to want anything. Right? If I don't want anything, there's there's no discomfort. It's the absence of want or desire, right? That's how I look What's at it. What's your, your definition of success? Um, again, getting to do what I want when I want to do it, basically. And, and that comes uh, and goes. It's not, it's, not, it's not like an absolute and it's not static. It's like there are periods there are periods where, where there is success and then there is periods where there is, there is a lack of success. You have to understand this. It's like, it's like everything is dynamic. Everybody wants something to be like, they think that there's some sort of absolute, like somebody that has a lot of money or a lot of fame, like they're always happy. I got, I got news for you. They get constipated just like everybody else in the whole wide world does, right? Take that picture. Next time you see somebody that is supremely famous, put them in, 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 in that level of discomfort and, and then view them from that perspective. And you go, oh, you're just like me. It's just that maybe at this moment in time, you have a little bit more money than me. Maybe you're just, you know, you have some other talent that I don't have, but that's okay. Cause I have other talents that you don't have. I'm the best me there is. You're the best you there is. And so focus on that. Don't try to be somebody else. It's a waste of time. You can't do it. It's not worth it. You, you have a very, you're a very young person. You're a very young person. You have a lot of time, but but that time as a representation of 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 forever is very small. Take advantage of it. Be you. Be the best you. Yes. And okay. or is is there something that you would like to change when you look back on your no. life? No. Beautiful the way it is. Why would I even why would I ever be concerned with that? Time time only goes in one direction. Hmm. Okay. Let's... You learn from it, 
you learn from it, but you don't change it. So it gave me an opportunity. It, if I'm happy right now, everything that I've done so far has contributed to this moment of happiness. Huh. So let's not waste our time, right? So I think the, uh, the fact that we are going to go away from this planet after a point of time, I think that feeling actually humbles people. It should. Uh, it should. People waste it, but people waste it because they think they, they think that they automatically get tomorrow. Huh. They take it for granted. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This pandemic made us realize this virus doesn't differentiate between the rich and the poor. I don't, I don't think it made us realize anything. I, I think it exposed us. It just, it just let us, let us see for ourselves what we really are, you know? So hopefully we learn from it. Uh, young man, I hate to cut you off, but I got to go. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. So I'm out here. My force into the ground is less and it gets more and more and more and more and more and more and more than it's max. And then it's less and then it's less and then it's less and then it's less and it's less, right? Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, so today's Wednesday. That means that tomorrow is Thursday, which means 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, Eastern Standard Time, we will have the usual coffee and coaches conference call. Um, so please join us for that. We've had great groups of people, great questions. I think everybody enjoys these calls. Um, they seem to be, they keep coming back. So I appreciate you all and I will see you all at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. Okay, digging into today's Q&A. Um, it's with Andrew. So Andrew's questions pertained to compressive strategies and breath holding. And the one thing we wanna to try to recognize here is that it's not always a bad thing. They are representative of certain certain elements. So sometimes during performance where we need to limit um, movement options under those circumstances, we are going to hold our breath. We can also use it diagnostically in the gym when we're working with clients is we're gonna see compensatory strategies that are associated with limiting ranges of motion or limiting movement options and breath holding. So we, we sort of hashed that out a little bit. And then we got into a little bit about the influence of, of how important experience is as you evolve um, your coach's eye, so to speak, in the gym and, and how um, we accomplish that, which cannot be acquired through um, consuming explicit information. So um, I hope you enjoy this call. Everybody have a terrific Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Oh, don't forget, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, um, please send an email to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we will get that set up at our mutual convenience. Okay, have a great Wednesday. I'll see you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. We are going to record. We are recording, and the timer has started. Andrew, fire away. So according to your model, expansion and compression are the two general strategies that we can use to navigate through space. Correct. And... As such, obviously, a compressive strategy is something that could be good or bad, depending on the context. Because if we have a global compressive strategy and we're trying to overcome something, limit motion, then that's a good thing. Um, and 
so obviously there's this element of context dependence um, when it comes to whether a compressive strategy is a good or a bad thing. Right. And it seems to me that there's kind of this, this gray area of when does a normal compressive element to an exercise or to an activity turn into a compensatory strategy or something that's limiting motion um, and not allowing us to get the most out of a movement, whatever it happens to be. Right. And I've heard you describe this as like lack of relative motion or lack of breathing excursion. Yep. So one way that I've identified when somebody is in compensation land is they just can't breathe. Um, okay. Um, and I'm wondering, I want to hear from the source. Is there, is there like a moment, is there like a defined um, transition point where we go from being in some sort of normal mechanical zone to compensatory zone? Um, and if so, how do we identify that moment as coaches and therapists? Because obviously we don't want to just say compression equals bad and expansion equals good because they're both necessary. Right. So I want to hear from you. Uh, is there a moment? Is there a defined something when that happens? And if so, how do we identify it um, with our eyes or our measures? Yep. Okay. So, so to really, really simplify this, um, you're absolutely correct that at, at the moment where someone has to hold their breath, you have somebody that is trying to reduce the degrees of freedom of movement. Okay, so degrees of freedom would be all of the options available. So let's say, let's say you have 244 um, degrees of freedom. Okay. okay, there's more than that, but we won't talk about those. But let's just say there's 244. Okay, so I have 244 possible movement segments that are available to me to use for movement. However, the, the higher the force production that, it, that I need to utilize, the more I want to restrict those. Stands to reason. Because if I have this total freedom of movement, all I'm going to do is I'm going to dampen the forces throughout the system, which is useful. Um, but again, if I am trying to produce force, I'm trying to be fast or whatever, I need to move segments together so I don't dissipate the force. So I can actually store and release that energy in the system, right? Rather than dampening it. Okay. So if, if I squeeze myself really, really tight, to limit segmental movement. Stands to reason I have to hold my breath to do that, don't I? Because I can't really breathe in if I'm squeezing, that's higher internal pressures, which would make me exhale. Mm -hmm. However, I close off, I close off the, the airflow, right? Um, and then I hold my breath and I squeeze against that. Now I'm a very, very stable structure. And now I can produce very, very high forces. The thing that you have to understand is, is that those forces are relative to the individual. So if I have a 40 year old accountant that has never played a sport in their life, and I'm asking them to perform something physical, what they may find is that they have to hold their breath just to sit down onto a box. 
Whereas I have a very high level athlete that is highly trained. They've demonstrated high levels of force production in the gym. Their strategy may be a whole lot easier to sit down onto that same box because the relative force applied is much, much lower for them than it is for our 40 year old accountant that's never played a sport before. So all of those things are relative, but you're absolutely right. Like one of the easiest ways, one of the easiest ways to tell when somebody is trying to limit motion is that they'll hold their breath. And then the, one of the other cool things that you have to recognize is that it's typically going to occur at a similar time, regardless of the individual. So, so at the peak element of force production is typically where you're going to have to limit segmental motion. So this would be at maximum propulsion. So if I'm just walking across the ground, there is a moment in time where the, the foot that's on the ground is applying its maximum force for that circumstance, for that context. So it's not the maximum force that they can apply. It just has to be the maximum force in that circumstance, right? And so that is a compressive strategy. And so I move towards that. So if I'm at the two ends of gate, right? So I'm stepping forward with this foot and I'm, and I'm about ready to leave this foot. So that's the extreme. As I move my center of gravity over the one and they get closer and closer to being in the middle, right? That middle propulsive strategy, which is internal rotation, which is high force into the ground. So I'm out here, my force into the ground is less and it gets more and more and more and more and more and more and more than it's max and then it's less and then it's less and then it's less and then it's less and it's less, right? So at this point, at these the, the transition where I'm applying the greatest force into the ground, that's where I'm gonna restrict the greatest amount of relative motion. That's where I'm most likely to reduce my ability to breathe under those circumstances, right? And it's gonna be context dependent, but that's basically how it works. Every movement that you perform has that built in. Because at some point in time, assuming I'm, on, I'm influencing the ground, right? And the ground is influencing me. So I have my equal and opposite forces, right? Um, under those circumstances, I'm always going to have a, a point of maximum propulsion. And this includes like, if I'm just rolling across the ground, there's a point where I'm putting maximum force into the ground. If I'm walking across the ground, there's a point where I'm putting the maximum force for that context on the ground. If I'm doing a split squat, it's the same thing. If I'm doing a squat, it's the same thing. If I'm jumping off the ground, it's the same thing. If I'm landing on the ground, it's the same thing. There has to be a point where I'm applying that force, right? The question mark is, um, am I capable of releasing that strategy when I need to, or am I carrying it around all the time? Because the relative load for me for, as an individual is always very, very high. So these are the people that are walking around with, with compressive strategies that become interference. And under many of those circumstances, these are the people that experience discomfort because they, they're not changeable enough. Okay. So let me give you another extreme. We, we can always use powerlifters because that they are representative of the greatest force producers of all time, right? Like they lift the heaviest things that anybody's well, strongman powerlifter, kind of in the same, same way. To create that degree of adaptation, to allow them to produce those forces, they have to be able to maintain those all the time, right? So their adaptations become so strong that they give up resources. They have to shift all of their resources in one direction. Right. And again, we would see this under any circumstance where somebody has, has taken 
something to the nth degree where they are super specialized under certain circumstances. And we're talking about physical, but this could be applied to cognitive as well, right? And so, so their, their, their adaptability becomes limited, but, but because their adaptability is limited, they demonstrate superpowers because of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so again, we, we just have to appreciate that when we're talking about like, like general population clients who we wanna make sure that we're influencing health in a favorable way, we want to make sure that that they're able to apply the compressive strategies when we want them to, and then able to reduce them when we when we want them to. Right? Definitely, absolutely. Does that clarify that to to a sufficient degree for you? Yes, okay. and I suppose if you're looking at a general population client and you're assessing whether or not there is some sort of compressive strategy at, I don't know, the, let's just say the posterior hip or something like that. Um, okay. Is it necessary to, is it necessary to just look at the movements and have a degree of experience with seeing these things? Cause I, I noticed that developing in my own training yep. um, to identify that that's there, or is there something are there things that are just visual that it's like, like I like, like something, let me say that in a different way. Is, are there things that are definitions where it's like, if this segment does this, or if this toe does this Correct. like that, is, yes. does that, does that exist? Or Absolutely. is it just simply the Absolutely. trained eye? Absolutely. Now. So, so, so let's be, let's be fair. There are things that you won't be able to see. Like I've, I've, I've never seen a moving living spine. Okay. All right. I have a general representation of where things might be, but I've never actually seen a living moving spine. Like I can't, my x-ray vision is not very good. All right. So, so we're using approximations of, of what we see as the representation. What we want to understand with, with the, the use of, of compression versus expansion is that what, what those strategies provide us are um, movement in certain areas. So the split squat's always a, a really good one to, as a representation because you have to move from a, a sort of a step forward, step back kind of thing. So we're kind of looking at, at what would happen during a step, like if you're walking. So at the top of the, at the top of the split squat, you're biased towards ER. At the bottom, you're biased towards IR. And so we kind of know that. And so anything that would be a deviation away from those representations. So if we were to look at, just look at a knee position as a representation in a split squat. So at the top, I know I'm kind of biased towards my my ER strategy. So the lead foot would be biased a little bit more towards. Um, probably because the foot's on the ground, it's going to be a, an early representation of, of, of ER. As I descend, I should see internal rotation, okay? But if I see the hip turn the knee outward in a split squat, and I see that deviation, then I know that they're searching for a new space, right? Because they didn't have enough external rotation as they started to descend, so I didn't have any space to superimpose the IR on, so they move the knee outward. That creates an external rotation space, and then they can still apply force into the ground because their foot's on the ground. They have to be applying force into the ground. There's, there's like no ends of their butts, right? Because again, we're, we're, we are grounded, 
Okay. But I'm still trying to find that ER space. So what that tells me is that again, I'm, I don't have enough external rotation under those circumstances. Therefore, there's not enough space for them to perform the, act, the activity as I would in, in most cases prescribe it. Right. So this was quite, sorry, that is a visual representation. That's a very easy one to see. Okay. Now, the more times you see something, so this is where experience comes into play. So let's just say you've seen a hundred split squats performed. And so your brain now takes a snapshot of a split squat. And then you, you have a representation in your head based on those hundreds hundred split squats of what is within the safe and adequate range for you, right? That is your model of a split squat. And you say, anything that falls within this is going to be okay. Anything outside of this is probably something I need to do. Now, let's say that you've seen 10,000 split squats. You have a much more clear picture of that representation. So it, it, at 100, it's kind of pixelated. It's a little grainy. You know, it's not very clear. And then at 10,000, you've refined it, right? And so now when you take that snapshot, instead of looking at different segments or different pieces, you see this one representation and you can start to see everything in its relative position to other, other elements of, of the split squat. And so now it becomes much more refined. Right. And then you can relate that to how other movements look. And so the really easy representation of the split squat then can be built up on top of with your other representations of movements. Right. So, so exactly. So, so you, you look at the split squat and you go, Oh, I see this, or I see this limitation. And then you say, okay, if that limitation exists, I should see it show up in another activity. So pick your, put whatever activity you want. You say, I should see it show up in that. What a great confirmation. Right. Very useful. Very useful. And now, now as the coach, you go either I, either I want to see that, or I don't want to see that. If I don't want to see that, then I know that I've just changed my exercise selection because I don't want to reinforce the, the negative. I want to enhance their capabilities. So that helps with me with my exercise selection overall, because I know that this is going to be an influence in any number of different activities. So if I see a hip limitation in a split squat, I should expect to see a similar limitation in a squat, or I would see an, a similar limitation in, a, in an overhead press, or I'd see a similar limitation in a step up, or if they're doing bounce or jumps or medicine both, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. Now I understand how this is going to create um, a potential either enhancement if it's force production or potentially a reduction in, in um, relative motion where I may want it. Right. Right. And, you know, I remember over the Christmas break, I, I joined a call and uh, you called me out for saying the N word. Um, and ever, <laughs> and ever since then, clarify that, clarify that. Uh, right, right, right. Uh, for neutral spine. saying the neutral spine. Yeah. Neutral spine. Uh, I use that when describing a back squat and how you can see that moments when it slips into extension away from neutral um, and so ever since then, I've been just trying to develop a more nuanced perspective of what constitutes normal mechanics. So 
the the confirmation that it's simply representations that we use to confirm our suspicions is good. It's also a little terrifying if you're probably, if you're a new coach or therapist to just be like, we don't really know what's going on. I mean, I've been doing this for almost six years, but a lot of people, you know, are just starting. And I guess, yeah, I guess my, one of the elements of my journey is going to be figuring out how to communicate this better and better to people. Right. But that's, that's where, that's where the, the apprenticeship model becomes so important. And especially for what we do, because there is so much that is experiential. So when you're in the gym, like everything that we've talked about in this call is about the influence of how experience helps us just determine what the interventions are, identify what we're looking at and what, what the best choices may be based on the probabilities that we have. And that those probabilities come with experience. If I am, if I just got my 30 day certification that somehow qualifies me to actually work with people, right? And I don't have any of those representations, where do you get them? Well, you get them from people that have more experience because what they're going to be able to do is they're going to be able to um, share their experience with you through reality, like literally working with people, right? That's why we. That's why we do the internships at IFAS. It becomes so important because people need the actual experience of doing these things versus just sitting in the purple room and drawing on the whiteboard and saying this is how it is, right? We and we can have that. It's useful information. But until you go out and you actually do it and you try to influence those changes and you try to identify what you're looking at, um, you know, you're 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 a bit lost. And so, again how you communicate it is going to be through that experience where you're going to see things that somebody that's never worked with anybody before can't see. Right. And then you're going to have to do this through a representation, but that's why it's so important because you can't explain these things. You like verbally, you can't do it. There's, there's, there's different types of information. So the, the explicit information is the stuff that people read and, and watch on the internet through videos or, or somebody expressing something. And then there's the tacit. And so that's what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about the tacit element. There's only one way to acquire that. And that is through experience. You can't explain it to anybody. Absolutely. But, yeah. And that's what, that's why, that's why this is hard. Right. And this is also why there are all these ridiculous arguments that show well it's true is because you could have two people arguing back and forth on any social media platform or or wherever they may be they both they both may be correct based on the moment in time that they are talking about it yet they appear to have this conflict going back and forth when the reality is it's like oh yeah because what you saw was not the same thing that this person saw because you right. both there. You both weren't there at the same time. You're both in different contexts. They can both be correct. Right. Well, the, the whole experience of watching your YouTube videos and struggling to apply it with my clients over the past like year has been um, illuminating in terms of what learning actually is. Because because it's it's not it's just not it's not just reading things. Like there's no especially for this. There's no way that you could possibly learn everything just by reading something. And that's, I guess that's the kind of the cookbook uh, analogy. It's like, there is no cookbook because you have to 
take that and then make something. So that is correct. That is yeah. correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. That's helpful to know that there aren't really, I don't know, there aren't really obvious, um, that there aren't concrete things that I can say, this is compensatory and this isn't, but we can use kind of proxy measures like the breathing and- Absolutely. Pos okay. Position, position, breathing, um, shape, right? When we talk about the shape, right? Cause we can, we can actually identify those things. But again, it's, a, it's an understanding, it's having an understanding of what those representations, representations may be. Also, we, uh, humble yourself a little bit and recognize the fact that you'll probably be wrong sometimes. And that's just, that's just reality. Just don't hurt people, right? right? It's always a safe experiment. You're not putting people at risk under those circumstances. If you're unsure, you don't do it. Right, right? absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. yep. All right. Great. Good to talk to you, young man. I will, yes. I will probably see you uh, uh, next week, right? Absolutely. Right, I'll, be, I'll be active on the Facebook group. There you go. All right. Have a great Take day. Take care. Have a great day. Happy Thursday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is Perfect. Good morning, everyone. Grace. This is crazy because I think the universe is in my favor and that all the things we've talked about this morning are leading to my question. So get out of here. Yeah, I know. That's it's not like even this possible. Call is for me. That's not. <laughs> Everybody's here for you, Grace. Great. Um, so, speaking of volleyball players, I um, was talking with one of the girls I'm coaching and she has always struggled with quote valgus no one's been able to like diagnose it um under max load she dumps internally everywhere at the knee and the foot um and this has been expressed like in frustration from her because when she's lifting she can't squat low she can't go up in numbers and everyone's just like well we don't really know why just keep doing your best and so okay she was just expressing great frustration and so i i did some tests with her last night and my thought is obviously she's trying to get ir from everywhere else where she's lacking it yep. um i think she is narrow it she looked a bit asymmetrical but there's probably some bias in my testing over zoom um and she was like very much either straight on or slightly pylon and so I, I'm just, I've been wondering, I've been trying to piece it together of like, okay, so what does this mean? What else do I kind of like need to either figure out or, or test so I can actually figure out what's happening? Okay. So, so let's, let's break this down a little bit. Okay. Let's start with, let's start with archetype. Okay. Cool. So her archetype biases her towards expansion into the ground. Yeah. Okay. Her her configuration, so the, the, the axial shape biases her into the ground, yeah. okay? Strike two, <laughs> okay? So when they put a heavy load on her back yeah. and they say squat down, she's pushing to save her life, right? right. So she is compressed and she is IRing to the max. What's going to happen to movement under those circumstances? Decrease. No, it's, it's going to just stop, right? It's like it's like literally, we took a we took somebody that's having trouble managing gravity and we gave them more gravity, right? Right. 
Okay, um, probably the, not the solution that we're looking for. Okay, so to problem solve, it, it, I don't wanna say that it's simple because it, it is, it, the, the concept is very, very simple. If I have someone that, that is tr having trouble managing gravity without external load, guess what? External load is not the solution. Yeah. So, so you're right. Every question up until this moment was for you. Okay. <laughs> so, so if, what did we just learn about this person? Is this going to be somebody that we can, we can teach to apply more force and she's going to gain range of motion? No, absolutely not. So what's the first strategy that we want to use then? Do we want to, we want to add load or do we want to take load away? Take load away. There you go. Okay, so so right away, you're starting to write a program in your head, right? So what do you need to teach her? Like give me two things from a strategy standpoint that are currently interfering that, that we, can, we can manage by taking load away. What are you gonna do? Get her back further well okay i don't know it doesn't seem clear to me that's where my thought process is limited okay all right so um is she so she stands up and she's fighting gravity right okay. and you can see it right you see, you see it in her feet you see it in the knee orientation you see it in the spine she's orientation not too much like in normal standing but as soon as you ask her to do something like as in like i don't know get into a squat she can't break parallel in okay. a split squat she starts to dump in everything just wants to pull in yeah yeah okay so so she's so again how do i make her lighter give me two ways to make her lighter like band assistance yeah, so like 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 crazy simple, right? So so she's a reverse band box squatter, okay. right? How else can I how else can I take that take the the effect of gravity away, um, like the downward force? What can I what else can I do here? Put her in a Frederick, pool. Frederick, huh? Put her say in a her. pool. <laughs> Put her in a pool. Hey, you know what? That that's not a bad. Frederick, go ahead and say it. Put her on the ground. Yeah, put her on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you, you, you take, you take the, the force that's pushing down this way and I turn her like that. Right. And now maybe I can teach her how to um, create the internal force. So she's a roller, she's an arm bar person. Right. I'm going to teach her how to do that kind of stuff. So she learns how to create the pressure and turn. Right. Yep. So, so basically you're, you're taking gravity away for a while. Yep. Teach her how to manage it. Right. And then yep. you slowly bring her back up. So her progressive resistance starts at less than body weight. Okay. Right. Same strategy we'd use to, to put weight on the bar. It's just that her bar needs to be so light that it takes weight away from her. So, so she's, a, she's a, she's a cable chopper. Yeah. Right. Okay. You see, you see the difference? Yes. Yeah. What would we see then like progressively, like, so if we're looking at space time, mm -hmm. what, what is that end changing look like? It's almost what, like, as we what end change do you want, Grace? What would you want to see? 
that she can like absorb load and produce force. So there you go. So so what is going to be her representation of her ability to absorb? So, so we're talking about, about a, a distributed yielding behavior, right? Because yep. my guess is that when she jumps off of a box, she hits the ground pretty hard. Yeah. Okay. So so if I ever jump off of a 12-inch box and I hear this big thud and I see her knees slam together as she's trying to land, would 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 a better representation of that after doing some training being a landing where it's a softer landing and the knees don't don't collapse towards each other? Yeah. You see the difference? So so now you're showing that she's actually learning how to manage the the uh, the forces as she's landing. Right. Her squat would potentially improve. Yeah. Right. And it may not ever be a perfect squat, but we're looking for better, right? Yeah. Do you, do you see do you see how you manage that though? It's like she if if somebody's struggling with gravity at body weight, you got to just make them lighter. You got to change the direction of gravity so so they can learn how to manage the forces before you you try to superimpose load. So what they should have told you in school when you're measuring table tests, and, and they said, this is how you measure hip internal rotation at 90 degrees of hip flexion. What they should have said is the whole system is turning into internal rotation. We just want most of it to come from the hip joint. Good morning, happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, I have a very busy Friday today. Um, maybe overscheduled a little bit, but we're going to give it a go. Um, so we're going to dig right into today's Q&A. This is another segment from yesterday's Coffee and Coaches Conference call, which was stellar. You should have been there if you weren't. Um, please join us next Thursday, 6 a.m. Got a great group of people, great questions. This one came from Alex. So Alex's question pertained to some of the visual representations that we'll see when people come into the clinic, which Anybody could be anteriorly oriented, but some people are going to present with what has been traditionally referred to as a valgus knee representation, and some people will have a what has been referred to as a varus knee representation. So what is the differential there? And so we actually break that down, and this it turns out that it's a center of gravity related issue where we have people in different phases of, of propulsion. And so we break down what you'll actually see in, in regards to your uh, table tests, if you do table tests, but, but you'll at least understand where they are, are in, in space. So this was actually a really great question. And like I said, we broke it down pre pretty well here. I think you'll, you'll get a lot out of it. Um, I have two spaces available this weekend for 15-minute consultations. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation call, then please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it, and we will arrange that and, and get those done for you. Um, have a stellar weekend, and I will see you guys next week. My question is in regards to, like, the visual presentation of when you see people come in and like in regards to their femur pelvis position, some people are dumped forwards with a lot of valgus. Some people are dumped forwards with um, maybe like bow legs. Um, and my question is essentially what determines whether or not they're going to do that? Is it strictly the ISA and the um, like the orientation of, or not the orientation, the relative position of um, the ilium and the, the sacrum, like nutation versus counter-nutation. 
Or can someone like a narrow who's starting with that relatively counter-nutated position go through the nutated position and dump forward into femoral IR? And then if they their weight travels more forward, can they present more back into like a late propulsive position? Does that make sense? I think I understand what you're what what you're asking. So so let's just let's just kind of talk through in sequence. Please. Um, let me let me let me grab this. So I think your question pertains to to where the center of gravity is. Okay. So I have I'm standing on two sticks and let's just fix them to the ground. And so we're going to move the pelvis around the two sticks. Okay. So so if I'm anteriorly oriented like so, okay, I can, I can end up in that initial representation that, that you were describing. So, so this is me putting force into the ground, mm -hmm. right? okay? So, and you, you used the, the, the dirty V word, right? You said valgus? Yeah, but I also threw up finger quotes. <laughs> okay. Whew, saved by the finger quotes. Um, so, but this is just representative of me trying to put force into the ground. So, so that means I, I'm internally rotating. So I'm trying to internally rotate here. And so what you're going to get is the twist here, right? In that distal femur, that's going to change the knee representation. So that's where you're going to start to see. So this is, this is the medial condyle. That's my downforce into the ground, right? Mm -hmm. That's going to push down and in. So that's the inward turn of the, of the femur. It's, it's, it's here, right? It, it's not getting dragged with the pelvis at the proximal femur. Not yet. We're, we're not, okay, uh, let's go back to space time. So I'm here, okay. But what if I keep pushing myself forward? Okay. Then you. So, so I got to push from here now. So this is already forward, okay. And now I got to push from here. And now I'm gonna go between the two sticks. I'm gonna push this between the two sticks, okay? But what musculature did I need to use here to push myself forward? Posterior lower. Yeah, so now I'm gonna get this hard twist into ER here, right? As I go forward, I'm gonna get farther and farther forward. This is gonna ER, ER, ER more. This will twist in opposition as far as it can until it can't. Okay, so I got ER here, IR here, until I get far enough forward where I can no longer twist the femur. And so the, the femur has to, the whole femur has to follow me into ER. And now I'm way forward. Do you see the difference in the center of gravity? Yeah. Okay. So go ahead. So in, in space time, you get the twist of the, the distal femur before continuing to travel your center of mass all the way forward, like through the, the femurs. Yeah, so, so okay, so, um, oh, hang on. Let me, where's that picture? Hang on. Oh, did somebody put up a picture on, on IFASTU last night? I can't remember. The, 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 the typical bow-legged individual, if you will, okay? They, that would be referred to as varus, okay? That started as tibiofemoral ER. So that's, that's an ER tibia relative to the femur. 
And then the femur kept twisting outward and it hit the constraint of the knee. It can no longer create the differential. So the whole system moves as one now. So the whole leg is turning outward, right? As the center of gravity moves forward because of the amount of muscle activity that's cranking that sucker into ER. You see it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. In both cases, you get the, the twist of the distal femur before you really start yes. to shove the pelvis yes. forward. Yes, because, because, it, it's, because it has to do with, okay, so if I was taking a step forward, okay, just a normal step forward, I'm a normal human being, I have full relative motions, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm perfect, right? So they step forward and they go through ER, they land in early, they go, they go through middle, they go IR, I got to get force into the ground, IR. There's the twist of the distal femur into the ground. If I go, if I center of gravity goes over the foot, I go into late. That's another ER, but it's concentric overcoming posteriorly pushing me forward. That's this. So again, but you're, but you can see people standing in relative phases of propulsion right? The farther into late that I am, the more pushed forward my center of gravity, the more everything has to, to turn out into ER systemically, because I'll have overcoming on both sides. So they're literally like the people that are standing with the, the quote unquote varus are just late, like late, late, right? Which is why you see the representations in the feet, which is why you see the bow of the leg, because the whole system is ERing there and they don't want to fall down. Right. Hey, Bill, I think that picture you're, you're thinking about Artem posted in the, uh, in the Facebook group. Okay. I don't, I don't have permission to, to show that on here then. Okay. It's a really good one though. <laughs> Guy look like, he looks like he just got off a horse. I'll have to imagine it. Yeah. Um, just, watch cowboy, just to watch, watch cowboy movies. Right. And just watch them. They, they come into the saloon. They throw the two saloon doors open. They walk in in their high heels and spurs, right? Yeah. Okay. So in both those examples you gave, um, nothing really happens at the, the proximal femur until later. So, so, so hang on. So in this one, uno momento, yeah. uno momento. Okay. If I am in an early propulsive representation, okay, that's ER at the proximal femur, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there is something going on there. It's just like to what degree? So that's a relationship between the ischium and the femur. Early propulsion is ER between the ischium and the femur. Mm -hmm. Follow me so far. Yes. Okay. Late is a relationship between that whole side of the pelvis. So we're bringing the sacrum along now and the proximal femur. Okay. Which representation has the greatest amount of surface area that's getting twisted into ER. Wait. Dang straight. Exactly. 
But that doesn't mean that I'm not getting ER at the proximal femur from the get-go. You see the difference? Yeah. Yeah. So in regards to the people who appear to be super anteriorly tilted with super knee valgus, just all dumped forward and in. Yep. Is that in like an order of occurrence, some type of posterior compression, pushing them their pelvis forward, a twist of the distal femur, and then nothing else, nothing else has happened yet. You have, like to, you have they a, haven't moved forward enough at, with their pelvis to, to enter late propulsion. They're still, in that is correct. That is okay. correct. Okay. Where the IR begins will depend on the archetype. So if I have, if I have a, a narrow ISA individual, because of the counter-nutated and, and lumbar representation of that, the IR is higher, it, it's, it's farther up the spine, okay, than it would be for a wide, which would be at the lumbosacral angle, okay? But both end up, if, if there's an IR representation of the distal femur, you have, you have a, a, an anterior orientation under both circumstances. You would have to, because mm -hmm. I need to create the downforce, right? It's just like, and again, we're talking about space time again. It's like, how far into it are they? That's what you measure. Like when you do measurements on the table, you're measuring where they are, right? The greater the loss of early flexion, the greater the loss of straight leg raise, the greater the loss of IR by traditional measures tells you how far into propulsion they are. Gotcha. Did we do good? Yeah, that was, that was cool. Okay. Yeah, because everybody, walk, if, if they walked in the door, right? If they walked in the door, they're, they're somehow getting through all of the propulsive phases, whether they have access to them or not, they're just going to create it somewhere, right? Internal, why do I describe internal rotation and external rotation as either movement down or movement up? Because that's what it is. And how you create that is dependent on your structure, how you're managing the constraints. So your internal rotation might be at L5S1 pushing you into the ground because you can't do it from the hip because that is twisted into ER because of your superficial compressive strategy. You see it? Mm -hmm. So what they should have told you in school when you were measuring table tests and, and they said, this is how you measure hip internal rotation at 90 degrees of hip flexion. What they should have said is the whole system is turning into internal rotation. We just want most of it to come from the hip joint. And they didn't tell you, oh, when you get hip internal rotation in this position, the spine is also turning away from you. They didn't tell you that, but that's what's happening. 